I'm Richard Sates. I'm a physician, primary care physician, and the editor of Evidence-Based Medicine and a professor of community health sciences and medicine at Boston University. Today, uh, we have Tim Stockwell. Tim Stockwell is at the Center for Addictions Research of British Columbia, University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada. And he's written a commentary on a article that appeared in the British Medical Journal. And we're going to talk about that today. But before we get started on that, I just wanted to ask Professor Stockwell or Tim, can I call you Tim? Please do. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, just to say a <laughs> bit about yourself, what you do, where you do it, and what your expertise is. Uh, I, I guess you've introduced where I work. I'm director of the Center of Addictions Research here in um, British Columbia, Canada. Um, I've also been involved in alcohol and substance use research in Australia and before that in the UK where I was a practitioner. Um, I was actually a clinical psychologist before I found myself involved in epidemiology and policy, particularly around alcohol but also other drugs. My main interest is looking at epidemiological aspects of alcohol consumption. There's so many puzzles and mysteries that I find fascinating and also looking at impacts at the population level of policies like what happens when the price of alcohol goes up, what happens when it's easier to get to bars or liquor stores because they're closer, or when a government alcohol monopoly is privatized. Those are the kinds of questions I spend my days looking at with my colleagues here. It's, it sounds like fascinating work. I mean, sometimes when we discuss evidence in health and medicine, it feels a bit cut and dry and, and that um, there's a little bit less opinion involved. But when we're talking about alcohol-related evidence, it seems like everybody has an opinion and uh, maybe because of the policy uh, context and implications that you're talking about. Yes, I think everybody does have an opinion, um, and it's kind of interesting being sometimes cast as an expert on a subject that everybody feels they're expert on. We all have personal knowledge, well, most of us do. Even if we don't drink ourselves, we observe other people and what it does to them. It's also, I think, something that indicates um, personal freedom. You know, when you grow up, when you can drink alcohol, it's a sign you're an adult, so that you're an autonomous person. And the idea that anybody should tell you how to do it or that the government should come and interfere with our personal lives by setting regulations around price and availability to some people is highly offensive. And so given that alcohol has some major implications for public health, it's a kind of delicious tension between people's rigidly held views um, that they will defend quite fiercely and very strong evidence about major public health implications of, of, of alcohol in society. Well, we always like it when evidence actually does inform what we think about things and perhaps what we do. So, so let's take a look at uh, the question that they asked here. They asked, I think they asked, are late life increases in alcohol consumption associated with breast cancer and heart disease or coronary heart disease risks in the asked that question about uh, postmenopausal women. Is, is this an important question? What, what's, what's the background for this question? Well, I think it's a hugely important question, and the research is zeroing in around the world on these two linked questions, particularly about the effects of low-volume alcohol consumption. On the one hand, 
There's evidence from certain types of studies that it may be associated with reduced risk of coronary heart disease and maybe conditions like diabetes, so low, low volume alcohol use. And on the other hand, there's risk, um, evidence of increasing risk of cancers, um, in cancers of the digestive tract. And this study looked at breast cancer, which um, um, would, would likely happen by a different mechanism. Um, so the idea that alcohol may be both good for you and bad for you in low doses is profoundly confusing and in which ways policymakers absorb that information or construe it may determine the extent to which particular policies about restricting alcohol's availability or even encouraging its use might occur. I mean, I've, I've heard some people argue alcohol is essentially a health product, that the more we drink of it, the less risk of heart disease. I don't, that's not an accurate reflection of the evidence. But those are the kind of ideas that steer people's personal behavior, feelings about policy, and even decisions about which policies get to be implemented. Well, certainly sometimes alcohol is talked about like a food, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And, and importantly, sometimes it's regulated as a food. In, in many countries, it's sort of classified under an agricultural product um, and that the sort of whole issue about potential risks and health problems aren't looked at as carefully as they might be. However, there are instances in which it's um, not even treated as well as food is from a health point of view. So in Canada, and I believe this applies in many countries, um, food has to be labeled with its alcohol content, calories, sugar, fat, all of these things. Alcohol gets off scot-free. There's absolutely no requirement for manufacturers to tell the consumers anything other than the percentage alcohol by volume. There's no information on sugar, fat, calories, all of these things which are important for people with health conditions who want to diet. And incidentally, they're not even required to say exactly how much alcohol there is in a way that we can use to follow guidelines. So how many standard drinks an alcohol container contains, for example. Well, so let, let's just take a quick look then at, at what they did in this study. And, and of course, you know, you know, everybody can read the study um, and, and even read your commentary. If, but uh, if you could just briefly tell us what they did and, and, and what you think they found. Okay, well, look, it's a very elegant study. It's a large study. They start with 21,500 postmenopausal women who participated in a major study on diet, cancer, and health. In, um, in Denmark, and there was a, 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 it's a prospective study. They followed these women up for 11 years, and they were particularly interested in exploring what happened in um, administrative uh, record systems, healthcare record systems, whether these individuals subsequently um, were diagnosed with coronary heart disease, breast cancer, or indeed died for any cause. Um, and so they tried to relate late life changes in their drinking. They looked at whether women on average increased over two or three periods of time, you know, between any two of these three periods of time over several years, they, they followed them. They wanted to see if they increased their consumption by an average of one drink a week or reduced it. Um, and then they related that to their risk of getting different diseases. Their conclusion was that women who increased their alcohol consumption, and these were women on average of 61 years of age um, at intake, if they increased their consumption over the next few years, they had an increased risk of breast cancer, but a reduced risk of coronary heart disease. 
And so they concluded this was consistent with the idea that alcohol in moderation can be cardioprotective, but also increasing risk of cancers like breast cancer. Did, did it affect their, their mortality as well? Uh, there was less clear evidence for what happened overall with mortality. In fact, the main finding was that large increases in, in alcohol consumption were associated with increased mortality. Also, there wasn't a symmetrical effect, so reductions in alcohol consumption weren't associated with the same with the opposite effects they observed for increased consumption. So the results weren't as neat as you might expect, but they nonetheless, um, you know, they're quite striking. So um, do, do you think that the findings then are valid or, or maybe a better way to say it is, are these findings valid and, and also applicable widely, you think? Or what are the cautions we should, we should take in interpreting the study? I think we should be very cautious. I don't want to criticize the study because it's very classic, good epidemiology, longitudinal design, very carefully done, good measurement. But there's a general problem that we're, I think, increasingly aware of with observational studies. Now, this one, there's a huge opportunity for selection bias because, in fact, for various reasons due to which women gave permission, which women were excluded from the study for health reasons at the outset, and which of them they were able to follow up successfully, they ended up with only 30% of the original sample. So there's huge opportunity for selection bias. Now, the alternative explanation of this kind of observational longitudinal study is that changes in drinking pattern, particularly in later life, can just be markers of a constellation of other lifestyle changes. So an example, we know, and it's fairly well demonstrated, well, actually, it's very well demonstrated in many countries. On average, when, in, as people age, if they cut down or stop drinking alcohol, um, people doing that tend to have poorer health than those who continue. So if you didn't take that into account, it might look later in life that people who aren't drinking are unhealthy and people who are drinking are healthy. And you could, could attribute all of that benefit to the alcohol, when in fact it's more about people got sick for other reasons and couldn't drink. So these are sort of basic kind of confounders that aren't always very well controlled. That's just one example. So our critique is not so much saying this is a bad study, but just saying how hard it is in observational research to account for all the other possible explanations. Late in life, well, drinking that would put you at risk of cancer probably takes place over decades. And so a little bit of a change late in life maybe isn't compelling evidence that maybe you, you wouldn't expect that. So for a number of reasons, we, we say be cautious interpreting these results. They're interesting, but we don't find them um, you know, as compelling as perhaps the authors suggest they are. So it, so it sounds to me like you're raising questions about what maybe many physicians and those in the general public believe to be a truth that um, and, and actually, I like that you called it low volume, I believe, low volume alcohol consumption, yes. as opposed to moderate, which, of course, moderate has some value judgment associated with it. So are, are you suggesting that low volume alcohol consumption uh, that we may not know for sure that it's that it has health benefits? Oh, absolutely. It's become very contentious uh, in particularly over the last decade. So, so the evidence 
that um, a so-called moderate drinker has reduced cardiac risk has been reported in many, many studies. Also, I've observed, and I think it's been demonstrated as well, that um, vested interest groups, people involved in the manufacture and sale of alcohol, often seize on this evidence, collect it together and promote it, whether through media releases every time one of these studies appears. Now, there are a whole range of reasons to be sceptical. One of the ones which I find particularly easy to grasp is that the same kind of protection, this sort of J-shaped curve, the J being you start as a lifetime abstainer, you drink a little bit and your risk goes down, then you carry on drinking, it goes up and up, and the risk curve is like a J. That sort of risk curve has been found for a whole range of conditions where you just shouldn't, for biological reasons, it's not plausible to say that alcohol actually could be protective at low, in low volumes. So there are conditions like deafness, um, the common cold, I mean, maybe you can construct reasons why this w would apply, um, hip fractures, um, various cancers. I just saw one yesterday actually suggesting low-volume alcohol consumption would protect you against prostate cancer. Liver cirrhosis is the most, one of the strangest. There's a very good meta-analysis showing that males are protected against liver cirrhosis if they drink a little bit. Women and the health of babies born of light drinking women is often shown to be better than those from abstinent women. The point of all this is to say if you get the same risk curve from drinking across a whole range of conditions, it fails to meet one of the Bradford Hill criteria for causation in epidemiology, which is specificity. So if that risk curve applies across a whole broad range of implausible conditions, maybe this is something about confounding and lifestyle risk behaviors rather than the alcohol itself. And that's just only one line of attack or reason basis for being skeptical about protective effects of drinking. Well, Tim, this, this has really been a fascinating discussion. I think we're just about out of time, but I did want to give you an opportunity if there's anything else that you wanted to comment on, maybe um, uh, any implications for practice, research, policy, we can wrap up with that. Yeah, I think a major take-home message, one of the, the, one of the major flaws that is prevalent in nearly all of these observational studies, well, it's nearly all, about 80%. Of, we've done many meta-analyses looking at alcohol's relationship to cancer, heart disease, all-cause mortality. Uh, the most common mistake is to put former and occasional drinkers as abstainers, and that makes the abstainer group um, particularly in older cohorts, quite unhealthy and makes the drinkers look good by comparison. We need a whole new, um, we need a whole swathe of new epidemiological research that doesn't make that error and has good measurements. Um, a lot of the measures of alcohol consumption are what did you drink in the last week? <laughs> and that's not a very good long-term sort of measure of more enduring patterns of, of drinking. We need a whole new set of studies that are conducted to a higher standard. And when these are done and these, these problems are corrected, I think we will find that the estimated burden of disease and injury from alcohol is, is quite a bit higher than currently estimated by the World Health Organization. It sounds like a really important line of research to pursue. Um, I do want to thank you, Tim, for sharing your expertise and obviously 
deep knowledge uh, in this area and helping us uh, understand this particular article and and really the whole issue about uh, alcohol and health. So thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for tracking me down here in on the west coast of Canada. Pleasure talking with you. Of course. This conversation has been about a commentary written by Professor Stockwell that appears on the Evidence-Based Medicine Journal website, which is ebm.bmj.com, and in the October 2016 issue of the journal. This was our first podcast for EBM, and we are doing many more. They'll come on a regular schedule. Look for them on our website associated with our published commentaries. Mm-hmm.